Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. We're glad you're here. We're glad you love Jesus more than the Royals. And, uh, So we're all going to offer a prayer for them that they win. If you're a Giants fan, repent, but we're going to be all Royals tonight. And we believe that because you came to church, there's a better chance of them winning. Amen? Amen. And for those people uh, who stayed home, it's like the deer hunters who skip church on opening day. They never see a deer. God is just. That's all I can say. Uh, We are glad you're here tonight. Uh, I have been shamed about having people stand up and greet one another, so we're going to forego that tonight. I'm going to pray. And then Michael and Chad are going to talk to us about the concept. It's kind of a a triple-headed monster tonight. We're going to open by talking about the resurrection and why it's not just a myth, why it's crucial to who we are as believers. And then we got some questions that came in on death and dying, got some questions about heaven and hell, uh, kind of the whole gist of the evening. Uh, We really encourage you, though, that we're going to extend this two more Wednesday nights. Uh, Children's programming goes on for those weeks. And so, uh, Chad, the topic you chose for next week is... Uh, Jesus among other gods. So we'll talk about um, how our worldview relates to the worldviews of um, those practicing other religions, other faiths, etc. So we're going to keep connecting that. So we encourage you to come back, especially if you have children in programming. We want you to to participate in that. And uh, so anyway, I wanted you to be aware of that so you can plan as well. But let me pray for us tonight, and then we're going to go ahead and and, uh, begin our conversation. And you can send any of your questions into that number. And I'll get them up here and we'll process them. Let's pray. God, thank you for a gorgeous day. And God, I also thank you for those miserable, dark, rainy days too and those snowy days. But we so much enjoy this time of fall where it's uh, sweatshirt weather and beautiful and we can take care of our lawns, go for a walk, just enjoy uh, what you give us each and every day. Uh, Help us to continue to have grateful hearts, especially in light of what we're going to talk about tonight when it comes to the resurrection, uh, when it comes to... Uh, who we are and what hope we can have even facing death. Uh, I thank you that you're a God who cares for us in our best and our worst moments, that you never abandon us, but you provide for us the evidence of your power in Jesus and you give us a hope that cannot be taken. And no matter what kind of day any of us had today, God, we can rest fully in that you are not diminished, that you are present, that you are providing, and that you're gracious. For this and so many other things tonight, I just pray that you'll bless our conversation. And we thank you for being our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so. Is this on? There we go. The one, the one, uh, one of the big things that I want you to hear tonight, um, that we want you to hear tonight, um, is this. And I feel, I feel like it's been said in some way, shape, or form over the last, certainly over the last several weeks, but I need to say it as explicitly clear tonight as possible. Um, Our faith is not a religious philosophy. Our faith is not a religious idea. Our faith is grounded in history. Um, and you need to know that that makes a huge difference. Um, there are other faiths in this world, some of which we'll talk about next week, um, even. There are other faiths in this world that qualify as a philosophical way of life. 
or, or an ideal. Our faith is, is not that type of faith. Um, our faith is grounded in something that happened in history. Something that happened in a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular person. Our faith is grounded in an historical event. Um, and that historical event, the event of the resurrection, has, um, has changed everything about us, about our lives, about our communities. It's, it's, it's that truth that, that really has brought about that change. Um, and so tonight we're going to talk uh, primarily, or at least firstly, about the resurrection itself. Because everything really does hang upon the truth of the resurrection. I, I, um, I think I mentioned this in one of our other sessions, but um, I, I lead my... Um, oh, I remember when it was. I think it was the first week that we were together. Uh, I lead some of my classes through an exercise where we try to... Um, put down on paper the, the beliefs that we hold that are non-negotiable. The beliefs that we hold um, that uh, if you took away this belief or if this, if this uh, belief were, were proven to be untrue, everything else in my life would kind of fall apart. And so I lead them through this exercise to try to, to, try to articulate what is essential from what, or differentiate what is essential from what is not. And, and for me... Um, it always comes back to two sentences which are related to each other. The first sentence is that Jesus is risen. The second sentence is that Jesus is Lord. And for me, that is solely what is at the core. Everything else really hinges upon the truth of those two statements. But my thing is, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't even believe in God, those two sentences are at the center. Because here's, here's the thing, here's the deal. If Jesus rose from the dead, track, track with me on this, if Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else really matters compared to that truth. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then none of this matters. No, our faith doesn't matter. We might as well go home and watch the game, okay? Um, Everything hinges on that truth. So if I'm not a Christian, if I'm an atheist uh, or just an unbeliever, the resurrection demands from me some sort of response. Uh, something like a person raising from the dead. It, it's not something that you could just blow off. Like, well, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't happen. Who knows, you know? Like, no, that's a pretty substantial thing to be out there. Like, you have to have some opinion on it. You know, if someone is saying that, this person rose from the dead. You can't just blow that off. Like, oh, well, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know. Like, it's, it, it's such an important truth that changes, that changes everything. It demands a response. And so what I would tell to a, to a non-believer, what I would say to a non-believer is much the same that I would say to a believer. Where are you at on the resurrection? Because if it's true, if it's true, nothing else matters. But if it's not true, then none of this matters. So let me just, and, and Michael's going to follow up with, um, uh, with some other comments, but I want to start us off by just talking, giving you five ideas, and I'm going to try to be brief. Five brief ideas um, or truths that, that would lead us to the belief that the resurrection is reasonable. 
okay? Five truths that would lead us to a position where we could say the resurrection is reasonable to believe in. Okay? So if the resurrection is an historical event that we're claiming happened, we ought to be able to at least get to the point where we can justify it with good reasons. And here's one, the number one reason why people re- reject the resurrection, can, can I tell you what it is? The number one reason why people reject the resurrection is because resurrections don't happen. Are you with me? Okay, how many of you have personally met in your life a person who has risen from the dead? Okay, none of us. Okay? We say, well, I've met Jesus. I'm not talking about Jesus. Okay? Uh, how many of you, we just know from our experience, we know that resurrections, that the, the resurrection didn't happen because resurrections don't happen. But that's actually really bad reasoning. Um, and I think I might have used this illustration before. I've used it in some context. I always forget if it was on this stage or somewhere else. Um, but if you told a person 500 years ago that, a, that eventually, someday, uh, man would be walking around on the surface of the moon, um, they would have said, no, that's impossible. And the answer would be, no, it's unlikely, but it's not impossible. So just because we find the resurrection to be implausible or unlikely does not necessarily mean that it's impossible. And so I want to give you five things. The way that I frame this up is, uh, these, are, these are five facts that a non-believer or a skeptic has to address if he or she is going to reasonably reject the resurrection. You with me? Let me say that again. These are five things that a non-believer has to be able to reject or deal with or explain away if they're going to successfully ignore the resurrection or, or, or be skeptical of the resurrection. Here's the first fact. I'm, I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. The first fact, you, you could just write it down this way, witnesses, witnesses. We have multiple witnesses to the resurrection in Scripture, five specific accounts of the resurrection in Scripture, if you add the Apostle Paul. Um, and, and these witnesses, there's so many things that I would want to say about the various accounts of the resurrection that we have in Scripture. Let me just say a, 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 a few things about this. The first thing that I would point out about the testimony of the resurrection in Scripture is that the, the, the testimonies of the resurrection contain the types of details which you wouldn't expect to find in a made-up story. Let me give you an example of this. The, the tomb was first discovered by women, a group of wo- women, uh, one of which was Mary Magdalene. Now, for us in our culture, we don't really think much about that, um, it's maybe an interesting point, but it's not something that catches our attention. But in the first century, this would have been absolutely scandalous. If you were going to create, uh, fabricate this idea that Jesus had risen from the dead, the very last person that you would ever have discovering the empty tomb would be Mary Magdalene. Because in that culture, a woman's testimony was not legally allowed even in court. And what's interesting is we have a second century account of the resurrection. We know it was written in the second century. It was written well after the facts a second century account of the resurrection. And guess who discovers the empty tomb in this second century account? Peter and the elders of the church. There's not a woman in sight. Which is exactly what we would expect to find if an account was written later on. But the first eyewitness accounts contain details that no one would have made up. Um, Another thing that I would say about the witnesses is that these witnesses are exceedingly early. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most important chapters in your Bible. 
1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. Pick it up and read it sometime later tonight or this week. It's one of the most important chapters in your Bible. And one of the reasons why it's so important is because in the first eight verses, this contains what scholars believe to be the most ancient text in the entire New Testament. Paul says that what I've received, what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he goes on to quote what many scholars believe is an ancient creed. That Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to all these people. He appeared to 500, he appeared to James, and then he says he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Most scholars believe that this is content, this is material that dates to within five to ten years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And I don't, I don't want to or, or really need to go into all the details on why scholars believe that, but they believe that this is the, the most ancient, one of the most ancient sections of the New Testament, which is incredibly important. It's incredibly important because, well, I'll use this illustration. Mark and I are Cubs fans, okay? And if I were to create a Major League Baseball team, I would never create the Cubs, okay? It makes no reasonable sense. The Cubs hurt me. Okay, I would never create the Cubs, but what creates Cubs fans? Um, I don't. Cre- I don't create the Cubs. The Cubs have created me as a fan. Going to Wrigley Field, watching them on WGN, growing up, listening to them on the radio, just growing up in that environment, it created in me a Cubs fan. And so people want to always say, well, Christians just created this doctrine of the resurrection. Several hundred years later, the, the ch- Christians just got together and say, hey, we want. Let's say something nice about Jesus. Jesus is a good guy. Let's say something nice about him. How about, uh, hey, I got an idea. Let's say that he actually rose from the dead. That'd be cool, right? That'd be awesome. So let's just, let's just create. And so that idea is out there that the Christians just kind of created this several hundred years after the fact. You need to know that that makes no logical sense and that makes no archaeological sense. Okay? It makes no archaeological sense because the earliest testimonies that we have about Jesus all talk about the resurrection. But it also makes no logical sense for Christians to do this. Because this wasn't even necessarily what people believed about the resurrection in the first century. What Christians were saying about the resurrection wasn't what people believed about the resurrection. This, this was an unusual circumstance. And, and th- this leads to the second point that I want to say. Um, uh, the second point that I want to say is talking about the disciples themselves. So you just write down the word disciples. And I don't really have a lot that I want to say about this except for um, this one thing. Um, the disciples gave up their lives, willingly gave up their lives, testifying primarily to the resurrection. Their testimony was primarily about the resurrection of Jesus and his lordship. And they sacrificed their lives as a result. Now, let's put on our cynical thinking caps for a little while. If the disciples were making up this story, what I know about human nature is, if I'm going to lie, there needs to be some motive for the lie. I need to get something out of it, right? If I'm going to lie, there needs to be something that I need to get out of it. And what are the primary things that motivate men? Power, money. I mean, these, these things are our motivation, So look at the disciples. What did they get out of this testimony about Jesus raising from the dead? They didn't become powerful. They certainly didn't become wealthy. 
They didn't like other religious leaders like Muhammad. They didn't gather about them armies conquering nations. No, they actually sacrificed everything, including their very lives. Now, do people die for things that are untrue? Yes, people do willingly die for things that are untrue. Just watch the news, okay? But a different and a better question is, do people die for what they knowingly know is a lie? So do, do not just one person, but do a whole group of people, do they die for what they know absolutely is a lie? I would argue that they do not. Maybe one person is insane enough to do so, but to have a whole group of people do so is shocking. Okay? So witnesses, disciples, um, taking these a little bit out of order. Um, third, third word, you could just write down the word dead. Okay? It is nonsense for anybody in today's day and age knowing what we know about the human body, about physiology, about, um, about physical trauma, it's nonsense for anyone to assume that Jesus survived the cross. He was dead on the cross. And we actually have non-biblical sources that testify to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate. I don't even need the Bible to prove that point. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And the Romans were good at, at a lot of things, one of which was killing people, Okay. The fourth word that I want you to write down is, um, is the word tomb. A skeptic has to deal with the fact that the tomb was empty. Scripture makes explicitly clear that Jesus was bo- buried in a well-known man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Have you ever wondered, if you were creating this conspiracy, the last thing that you would want to do is to give the address of the tomb that Jesus was buried in. Um, And so people have come up with all sorts of explanations. Well, the disciples, maybe they stole the body, which is nonsense, because again, you run into the same problem of the disciples dying for a lie. Uh, Maybe they stole the body. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb, which again is nonsense to assume that, I mean, Jesus, they knew where Joseph of Arimathea was born. Do you know why Joseph of Arimathea had Jesus buried in his tomb? This is kind of interesting. I discovered this recently. Because it never, like, was Joseph, was he like secretly a disciple? Was he... Here's, here's the thing. If you were crucified as a criminal, as Jesus was, um, you, your family was not permitted to bury you in your family's tomb. Every family had kind of a family tomb, or most families, unless you lived in, in poverty. You had a family tomb. But if you were crucified as a criminal, it was illegal for you to be buried in your family tomb. But it was also considered to be great shame to have any dead body, especially during the Passover time, to have any dead body remain exposed and unburied. That was a shameful thing for the community. So it became the Jewish ruling council's responsibility to provide for the burial of criminals. Joseph of Arimathea was on the Jewish ruling council. He was taking up his responsibility to provide a burial for this criminal. And so we know that Jesus died, and we know that Jesus was buried in this man's tomb, and the tomb was empty. Fifth word, last word, and then I'm going to hand it over to Michael. Um, You could just write down the word church. You could write down the word church. There's something about this room. There's something about your presence in this room, which is a powerful testimony to the truth of the resurrection. 
There's something, just, just even something as small as meeting together on Sunday morning is a powerful testimony to the resurrection. Have you ever wondered and marveled at how strange that is? Especially given our roots within Judaism, which saw Saturday as a sacred day for centuries, and all of a sudden we start worshiping on Sunday morning. Something tells me something must have happened on a Sunday morning to cause that change to happen. But the reason I like this, this, this particular argument is um, it, it, it does make a certain amount of sense. The person can come along and say, well, you know, you guys all might be wrong about that, or you might all be deluded about that. Well, that's true. I might be wrong about that. But think about this as an illustration. If you went to downtown Joplin tomorrow and you saw a guy holding a sign that said, Elvis is not dead, he's risen from the grave, what would you immediately conclude about that person holding that sign? Be honest. What would you think? Crazy. You're not going to go up to him and ask him for more information. Do you have a pamphlet? You know, you're not, you're not going to, you're just going to write him off like dude's crazy. Okay. So the next morning you're driving down to work again and that guy is still there, but now he's got five friends and they're all holding signs saying Elvis is not dead. He's, he's alive. He's risen from the dead. What would you conclude now? Every crazy person has a group of crazy persons that he's friends with, right? So they're just pulling some sort of stunt, right? They're just pulling some, some sort of prank, you know. They, they want to get some reaction from me. I'm just going to ignore it, keep going. Okay, so the next day you come down, instead of that group of people, now you have 50. And then you come down a week later and there's not 50, there's 500. At a certain point you start to get concerned, where do I live, what is going on? Is there some conference that I'm not aware of? Like, at a certain point, you start to get worried. But at what point do the numbers become so large that you actually have to pause and wonder, as crazy as it seems, maybe there's something to this. You come down a year later, there's not 50, or 500 now, now there's 50,000. At what point? A million. Five million. At what point do you start to wonder, huh, I know it seems crazy, but it, it seems maybe there's something to this. The fact that we still to get, gather together in the year 2014 in southwest Missouri and sing songs of praise to a Galilean carpenter, you ought to regard that as a rather miraculous event. Every Sunday we get together for worship is kind of a miracle. The fact that Jesus still changes lives is something that, frankly, if you're going to be a skeptic of the resurrection, you've got to deal with the church. How does Jesus still change and transform lives of people all over the world? How does that even happen? You know, I just, I don't know. I find that a pretty remarkable testimony that a skeptic can't just blow off. A skeptic has to deal with it. So, Michael, add to it, take away from it, hey, Michael, make it better. It, what would you add to this? I know Chad feels time crunched. Anything you would add to those before you go into your next section? Um, I, not content-wise. I found that to be a very, very helpful description of it. And, and specifically the part that my attention was drawn to in hearing you talk about it was just you've got to deal with the actual texts. And I think sometimes because... 
there's kind of a cultural assumption that the Bible is embarrassingly naive, that oftentimes that's the approach of a skeptic, uh, whereas a true skeptic should approach the scriptures with a truly open mind and to find that apart from questions of faith, simply as a historian, these documents are actually fairly impressive. And Chad, just, just sort of the tip of the iceberg with regard to uh, some of the details about the text that are just hard to explain away, historically speaking. You mentioned the women. Uh, you mentioned the early nature of the texts. Well, and uh, the, fact that, the fact that the disciples were, uh, the disciples were hiding. Yeah. They were no cowering. Yeah. If you were going to make up a story, if you're going to make up a conspiracy, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have the earliest leaders of the church basically hiding yeah. while the women were doing the brave thing and going and taking care of the body at the tomb. Yeah, so it's, it's another embarrassing detail. True. In no that. world, especially as you said, not in that world. And also, when you look at what's interesting about the resurrection accounts in the scriptures, specifically the the ones in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is, and you can do this uh, either by looking at your own Bible or you can find these kind of things online. If you line up the text from the stories about the resurrection, you're going to find an interesting mix of different details, but similar overall thrust of the story. And for me, when I was younger and first started taking the Bible seriously, this was a problem for me. Why don't all these stories say the same thing? How can these different authors be saying different things about this? Clearly, they contradict. Clearly, this is impossible. Was there one woman there or was there a group of women there? And which woman was there first? And who spoke then? And all these kind of things. So obviously, they're making it up. Or at least it seems that they may be making some of these things up. But then you actually think about it in, in, in context of real life. And an example that I've heard before, it didn't make this up. I may have even heard from Chad on a different occasion. I'm not quite sure. But imagine if you, and how many of you are teachers? Some of you in here, in here I imagine, are teachers. And so think about like if you're teaching younger kids and they're out on the playground and something happens and somebody gets into a fight and you find out about it later in the day and you've got to get to the bottom of it and you bring every single kid individually into a room. Let's say there were five boys involved in this. Um, against one boy, right? So these five are on one side, one boy's on the other side. If you pull in these five boys and they tell you word for word exactly the same thing, like no details are different, but exactly the same verbiage, then you know they have gotten together and they have said, here's what we're going to say. We're making up a story. But if you pull them in before they're able to do this and you ask each of them to individually give you an account of what took place, there's going to be consistency, generally speaking, unless they're totally lying, in which case you can find this out. But there are, even among the true accounts of this story, going to be different details. Even times when some of these details, strictly speaking, like both can't be literally, like one person connected with the other first, you know, or if there are four people throwing punches at the same time, the punches are thrown in a certain order. But if I, I witness events describing in reality what happens, you're going to get slightly different records well, of this. Let me follow that up and then... Uh you take back over, but how many of you, raise your hand if you believe that the, that the Titanic sank. Raise your hand. Let me see you. Okay. Everybody should raise, because it did. Okay. I'm not trying to trick you. All right. Um, it actually did sink. Um, but do you realize, you, you may not realize, we have two very different eyewitness accounts of the Titanic sinking. No, now we, we no longer live, obviously, in a day and age where, um, I I don't think so anyway, where an eyewitness is still living. So we're trusting different historical accounts, okay? Um, It's sort of like the last time the Cubs winning the World Series. We're trusting the historical accounts. We've never seen it, but we trust that it happened. Um, So so we have to trust the historical accounts of the Titanic sinking. Um, There are two very different accounts. One has the Titanic sinking whole. Another account has the Titanic breaking in half and then sinking whole. Now, or sinking after that. Now, if you saw a giant ship 
break in half. Okay, that seems to me like something you'd remember. You'd remember, Okay, yeah. like, oh, yeah. yeah. I guess that did happen when, but that was when Leo was, like, free, he was freezing, like, becoming the human popsicle. I'll never let go, I was Chad. more concerned I'll never about, let go. sorry, spoiler alert. Yeah, but there was, was enough room for both of them there on was, that raft. There was. I was so concerned about their, their, their you know, ill-fated love that I missed the fact that the ship was splitting in two. Um, but there's actually two different accounts. What no historian anywhere would ever say, though, is that because there are two different accounts, the Titanic didn't actually sink. Okay? So, and what Michael's saying is, yes, there are some, in the details, there are differences between the four Gospels, and I actually see the differences as a good thing. Um, but what, what really we shouldn't be suspect of is, did something in fact happen? Okay? You, you catch the difference there. Go ahead. Yeah. No, amen. And the only other thing I would add, too, in building on the last point about the church is one of the, one of the skepticisms that is at times <laughs> raised, and perhaps some of you have heard this or even thought this yourself, is, well, yeah, we're here because uh, Constantine decided that Christianity should be the official or the legal religion, and therefore everybody became Christian, and that's why the church is still alive today and we're doing all these things. It is true that Constantine made Christianity legal. It's not true that he made it the official religion that came later, but he made it legal. And at that time, it became socially advantageous to become a Christian. You were better off, and just in terms of engaging society, if you were part of a church. But that was in 312. And you have to ask the question, why did he do this? And there, there's a lot of different things that go into this, uh, including the vision that he claims to have seen of Christ telling him to conquer in his name. But part of the reality, too, and all historians would suggest this, that part of why Constantine made Christianity legal is because he recognized that the empire was not stable at that particular time, and he had to come up with something to unify it or else the thing was going to crack in two. This is when the center of power in the Roman Empire was moving from the west side of the empire to the east side of the empire, and he knew he had to do something to maintain unity. And so he recognized that there were so many Christians, and that these Christians were already a unified family, and that they were in all different parts of the empire, that if he made this legal and got the Christians on his side, then that would probably unify the empire as a whole. And it worked. But the question for us is, why were there that many Christians to that point? We're talking about a small movement in, in basically the armpit of the Roman Empire in the first century, which shouldn't have even got off the ground if nothing happened after this guy was put to death. And yet it becomes and grows exponentially and quickly just in a matter of decades becoming centuries to the point where Constantine said, I know what I can do to win this game. I can go ahead and side with the Christians. And so just, well, just more along that same lines of what he's saying. And this is another point that has become increasingly important to me as I've continued to study this is our presence, as he said, as people who come into a church on a Sunday of all days, worshiping the God of Israel, and we do so by the center of our worship being the taking, the ritual, this sort of ritual cannibalism by which we metaphorically ingest the body and blood of a crucified Messiah. That makes no sense to anything, anything closely resembling first century Judaism, and yet the fact is, is that these practices we engage in have a 2,000-year history now. Okay, and uh, I had the pleasure of doing this twice with Chad this summer with high school kids. Uh, and I'm not adding to what he's saying. A couple things I want to throw at us to remember. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, a key passage, according to the scriptures, one of the most convincing realities for me uh, falls to two points. And this is just that list expanded. You can't make up the exact 
personification of the Old Testament prophets on a myth. There is too much evidence from the Old Testament written hundreds of years apart that Jesus did exactly where they said he would do it in the way it would be done. So for the skeptic who simply says, and, and Brad sent Buck a follow-up question, you can say there are millions of people following Jesus today. There's millions of people following Muhammad. So don't think that you're going to lay down five trump cards and have the audience go, ooh. But the, according to the scriptures is the deal breaker with me. And then the other piece is, look at the transformation of the disciples. And I know Chad was flying through his because he expounded on this this summer. But if you look at those guys in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at them in the book of Acts, what changed? And you can say the Holy Spirit based on what? An absolute sellout to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, who couldn't get it right in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nails it in the book of Acts. As sloppy as he is at times, he's committed to death over this. So there's some beautiful uh, transitions. But when you get into them, remember that this is not a recipe to convince your neighbor you're right. This is when we start living out the love and grace of Jesus Christ in the face of our enemies and betrayal and all that goes on, then the resurrection is really evidential. And I think that's what most people are looking for, as we like to say around here, a satisfied customer. Yeah, and the, the point of discussions like this tonight, the, the point of kind of much of this whole series is we want to get to the place where we can... Um, remove obstacles to faith, where we can, we can create an environment where faith, um, I, don't, I don't know if I want to say it makes sense, but we can create an environment where it, it's, it's, it becomes reasonable to believe what we believe about Jesus, about the resurrection, about his lordship, about his ministry. And so it's not for the purpose of, and Sometimes this can be abused and misunderstood. It's not the person, purpose of hammering people like, no, like, this, this is, these, are, these are five things that we need to just hammer people. The purpose of it, of it is to actually get us thinking, mm-hmm. why do I believe what I believe? And, and why does it make sense? Yep. And there's a question that's popped in here that I think we can interject. Uh, we're going we're gonna to expand on this in two weeks if you all come back. But the question in light of this is on the Constantine subject. Uh, is it plausible that there are missing or politically omitted books of the Bible? Um, Once, you know, the church in all of yeah. its mistakes. Yeah. It's a great, I don't know who asked that question, but it's such a good question because so much of, of, of this obviously comes back to the scriptures. I, and um, how do I want to answer this? I'll, I'll give it a shot and then chat as always. Feel free to, to jump in. Um, I think that, is it, <laughs> is it possible? <laughs> is it possible well, it, like technically speaking, like we're arguing that, the res- that, that a guy rose from the dead, so it's possible. But the question for us is, is it likely? And um, a couple of things that you got to keep in mind in this regard are uh, the, the scriptures, the decisions to, to re- kind of ratify or recognize which books belonged in the Bible came in the 300s. Yes, the final decisions came in the 300s. But this was the conclusion to a very long process, most of which took place when the church had no political power. And the question was not like a bunch of guys sitting in nice offices wearing pretty robes thinking to ourselves, like, how is it that we can maintain our power? Well, let's pick the books that are going to do that for us and not. No, the question was actually much more, which of these books do we have to die for? And like, which of them are we allowed to say, oh, yeah, I can reject that one? 
which is a very different question. So the decisions of which books made it into the canon was actually determined by communities who were risking their lives on this. So um, missing, the, the, what, I, what I don't know how to speak to is the idea of, of text missing from the scriptures. I mean, I think theologically, I, could, I, I believe that in God's sovereignty, all the books are in there that he wanted in there. But even historically speaking is where the second question comes in. Could there be political reasons to why a book was excluded I mean, not really. When, when you consider the, if it was, if there was no discussion of which books were in the Bible, and then in the year 312 when it became legal, and then later on in 380 when it became official, if that was the time period when they begin talking about which books are going to make it in, then I think you'd have an argument, or whoever it is that would make that argument would have that argument. But the fact is, we have questions of which books we should su submit to, even, even in the New Testament itself. And we have the beginning of lists being made regarding which books should be in and which books should be out as soon as uh, middle of the second century, middle of the 100s. So um, the idea, and I, I mean, it was, it's been a few years now, but it hasn't been all that long since the whole Da Vinci Code thing, you know, bubbled up and, you know, have these characters claiming that there were over 80 Gospels that should have made it in and all of the others were excluded. That's ridiculous. Like no secular Jesus-hating historian who gets to keep their job outside of tenure is going to say something like that. I mean, that's just not even possible for that to be a realistic statement. It's pure fabrication for the sake of selling movies. But I was actually grateful that the movie did, even though it was basically wrong on everything it said about history, it did actually raise the questions and gave us as a church a renewed desire to talk about how the Bible came together. So I don't want to say more because I know, like you said, we're covering it in a couple weeks. But that would be just, a, uh, well, not brief, but a, in theory, brief answer to that question that was specifically right. asked. Let's, let's proceed. Yeah, it, 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 makes, it makes great fiction, yeah. but like a lot of fiction, when it's actually compared to hard history, archaeology, textual criticism, you discover very quickly that there just weren't non-resurrection sources from the first century um, that were vying for, for competition to get into the canon. So it makes a great conspiracy theory. Unfortunately, like a lot of conspiracy theories, it starts to fall apart when you actually start to study it and look into it. And um, so we're going to slide to part two sure. now, Michael. Yeah. And the whole term canonicity, I, I know most of you understand that that is how the, the books of the Bible were snapped together and agreed upon by the scholars as le legitimized. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that in a couple weeks. Go ahead, so the second, the second part or question that we wanted to be sure that we addressed was the follow-up question to that, which is what difference does it make? And I even want to frame it in terms of the question that, that a person asked um, about Islam. So, uh, you, good point, by the way. There are multiple, many followers of Islam. There are many followers of Buddhism. There are many followers of Hinduism and any other number of practices. So why is it that we're pointing to ours? And obviously, Chad gave more reasons than just that one. But, but the difference that it makes is it gives us an answer to this question. Uh, why should we be who we are? And I want to, if I can, give you two sets of two. I want to because at the end of the day, the, resur we, the resurrection changes everything. There's a, there's a group in town uh, of ministry called Christ and Youth, which many of you are familiar with, and they do put on these conferences for, for students in the summer. And this last summer's theme was this changes everything, and that this was the resurrection. And at the end of the day, it really does. What difference does it make? Well, it changes everything. Chad already said that. The difficulty is we live in a world where everybody's claiming that kind of thing. You could watch a commercial that promises to change your life, and they're selling you insurance or a vacation to Hawaii or a particular kind of biscuit. You know what I mean? So we make these elevated claims over silly things, and so it becomes difficult to actually, when we come to a point where it does change everything, it just sounds like we're selling something. So let me give you two areas where I think it changes everything and two examples of each of those areas. 
the two areas where I think it changes everything, one's doctrine and one is ethics. In other words, why do we believe this and why do we do this? And I don't know about you, but I find myself asking both, both of those questions. Um, why do we believe this and why do we do this? I remember the first time I actually sat down with a Mormon person and they explained Mormonism to me. And I, w I thought to myself, that sounds absolutely crazy. And then I realized that I'm going around telling people that we could receive salvation in this life and the next because of the death and resurrection of a Jewish rabbi who also happened to be a carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago and nobody's actually physically seen since a couple of years after his death. That's crazy, yet we believe it. And so when it comes to this issue of doctrine, why do we believe what we believe? Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ isn't raised, we're still in our sins. So we shouldn't believe that Jesus saved us. So our beliefs about salvation are grounded, are rooted in the resurrection. Our beliefs about God are rooted in the resurrection. I just had a conversation with a student today about how can we believe that Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine? How does that work? And we talked through this for a while, and I did my best to explain it. I even brought in one of my other colleagues in, and he gave his, his explanation, and we were talking about it. At the end of the day, it comes down to we're not fully going to be able to articulate what it is we're talking about when we say that Jesus was 100% human or 100% divine. Same thing's true with the Trinity. We're never going to be able to fully articulate what we mean when we say that God is one essence but three persons. And so, as reasonable people, we ask, then why in the world do we believe it? And the answer is because of what he just said. We're not sitting around trying to come up with an idea of God that we like. We're responding to what God has apparently done in raising Jesus from the dead and making sense of that. So when you find that Christianity teaches something that you think is crazy, you're probably right. It seems crazy because it <laughs> seems crazy. And so then the answer becomes, well, then why would I believe this? And the answer to that question is because Jesus rose from the dead. So it changes everything in regards to doctrine. And the two examples, again, are salvation and the nature of God himself. The second area that I think it changes and makes a difference is uh, ethics, in terms of how we live our life. Why, do, why would we do what we do? And again, I'll give you two examples of this. Uh, Christianity calls us to love our enemies. And apart from the resurrection, that doesn't make any sense. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our death is also the end of our stories, and therefore, we probably should do whatever's going to keep us alive long enough. And even if you want to say that maybe there's an afterlife, and so we do good in order to attain the afterlife, okay, you have no grounding for that. You're just guessing. We're not just guessing. We're saying that it makes sense to love our enemies, even if it costs us dearly, even if it costs us, as it has many, our own lives. That makes sense. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Another one that we're about to actually talk about as a church, what we do with our money. We're about to talk about, and we're about to call, you know, I'm going to be sitting where you're sitting, and, and Mark and others are going to stand up here in the elders, and they're going to call us to sacrificially give money for the sake of investing in building buildings on this property and engaging in ministries both here and in other parts of the world uh, through the efforts of Christ Church of Ornogo. Why would we do that? I remember hearing a story about uh, giving, and this couple had come to a church, and they were wanted to talk to the pastor about giving, and they, I can't remember, if, I don't think I've told this story here, maybe one of these guys has. They wanted to talk about giving, and they asked the pastor, first time they came, we need to know, is this a law church or a grace church? He said, well, I, I mean, I'd like to, I don't know if I know what you mean. Tell me what you mean. They said, well, we want to know if this is a law church or a grace church. He said, explain. And they said, well, we came from a law church. And the law church that we used to go to demanded that every person give 10%. 
And if you didn't give 10%, then you could not be a member. So I want to know, is this a law church or a grace church? And the pastor's brilliant. And his answer was, well, this is a grace church. We expect way more than that. (laughs) And the reality is that's really kingdom finances. It's not just that we give 10 and do whatever we want with the 90. It's that we take 100% of the money that 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 we receive. And we think, how can we use this money in a way that honors God? And that will mean that we don't always make the decisions that we in our flesh would want to do. But rather, we use money for the sake of other things. That doesn't make any sense if Jesus isn't who he says he was, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We are choosing to evaluate how we spend our money now in the light of eternity. And the only good reason we have for doing that is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So generally speaking, the difference the resurrection makes is it provides a foundation. It provides a grounding. It provides a reasonable um, or just that, a reasonable foundation for everything that we believe and everything that we do. And in the end, it allows us to rest in the times when we don't fully understand our faith and when we don't fully grasp why it is that Jesus has called us to do certain things. We may never have the answers to those questions, but the good news is we can believe with a reasonable degree of confidence based on the arguments you just heard that Jesus rose from the dead. And that does by changing doctrine and changing ethics, by grounding what we believe and grounding what we do. That does indeed change, I think, everything. Okay, now let's do some rapid-fire things. What do you say to the person who believes in the resurrection, yet it hasn't changed everything? Um, I think the challenge of some of the things I've read, Michael, let me squeeze it a little tighter. Some of the things I'm reading from people that have emailed me and so forth is they want so much to have that explosion of joy Mm -hmm. and that transition from the Gospels into the book of Acts, Mm -hmm. and it's not there. Yeah. A couple things I think I'd say. One thing I think I'd say is it's probably changed more than you think because you're here, and you're genuinely desiring to have a life that is more honoring to God and filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That that wouldn't be true if, if not for the resurrection. So the resurrection's changed more than you think, but at the same time, I applaud you for wanting it to change more. And that's where I think two other things come in. One is, I think it's true to say that the blessings of the gospel become real to those who think about them. Let me say that again. The blessings of the gospel, the benefits of the gospel become real to those who think about them. And this for me is based on places like Colossians chapter 3, where Paul says to set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Uh, And it sounds like really fancy language. Really, he's just saying, think about it, focus on it concentrate on it. And I think there's a sense in which sometimes we don't experience the full blessings of the gospel, the full realities of salvation, because we've not necessarily been taught the full realities, or if we have, we have not ourselves thought about it long enough for it to actually deep, you know, sort of bleed down into, through our hearts, through our minds, into our hearts, and therefore through our lives. So the first thing I'd tell you is practice the discipline of study and meditation on the truths of the gospel. Memorize Colossians chapter 3. Read Romans 6 through 8 every day for a month. There are some of these practices you can do to focus your mind on it. And the second thing I would say is, in the book of Acts, what we see is a community that's going for it. And the joy that they experience and the the passion that they exhibit is, is, first of all, based on what they believe to be true. They believe that the resurrection is true. Therefore, they engage in sacrificial service to the kingdom of God. I was reading just today, I was teaching on Acts 16, when Paul and his companions, they want to go into the province of Asia, and the Holy Spirit says no. And they're like, well, maybe we'll go to Bithynia. And the Spirit's like, no. 
And then the Macedonian man comes in the vision to Paul and says, we want you to come over here. And at the end of the day, the cliche, but it's true, that comes from this text is go until you get a no. It's easier for God to steer a moving vehicle than a parked car. And part of why we don't experience the joy that we see in the book of Acts and the passion and the excitement is because truth be told, we're not engaging in the mission of God. Now, I'm not trying to pour guilt upon you. I'm just saying this is why Jesus calls us to these things, because he wants to increase our joy. And so really, if you believe in the resurrection, that's all you need to get started. And so now, when you wake up tomorrow morning, start by meditating on the truths that you believe to be true, which is that because of who God is, if I fully understood that, I would have joy. So who is God? What has he done for me in Christ? Think about these things. And then go from that time of thinking about these things, whether you have 10 minutes to do it or an hour to do it, just do it. And if you don't have an hour, just go with 10 minutes. If all you got is your time in the shower, think about it when you're in the shower. Whatever you can do to meditate on these things, meditate on them. And then when you get out of the shower, first put your clothes on, then brush your teeth, and then ask God, how do you want me to engage in your ministry today? And wait for him to give you opportunities, and those opportunities come, jump for him. Because I guarantee you, the things that you saw the apostles, that you see the apostles do in the book of Acts, there were times when they were looking at the Holy Spirit going, this is crazy. But they did it anyway. And that, I think, is something that I can at least say personally is at times missing in my own life. And often when I'm not finding joy in the gospel, I'm either not thinking about it or I'm not actually living it out. Again, no guilt, but go for it, for the joy that is there for you. I, I'm not sure that I can or even should add anything to that. I think that's that's great. Um, I I will say this though. I, I think I keep on as as Michael was talking. I was I was think I I don't want to shortchange the question at all because I think I think the question is outstanding and I think there's a divine impulse behind that question. I think I think there's a conviction behind that question that I think is is admirable um, that we all need to be sensitive to in our lives. Um, because what, what we do is with the resurrection, like, like a lot of quote religious beliefs, we turn the resurrection into an idea. Um, and we sometimes neglect or we forget that this is an historical event that actually happened. And, and, um, we, it's easy to stop being shocked by that. Um, and, and so as as you're, as you're thinking, you know, (laughs) I think, I think about the experience of getting married and, you know, anybody that's in here knows that to be married, I mean, you're not, you're not running around with your hair on fire every single day that you're married. I mean, you're not, you're not waking up in the morning and saying, oh, I'm just so thankful and so joyful that I'm married and I can't believe it. This is amazing. You know, like... I do. My, Mark was. That's what happened to him. That's yeah, happened that's to actually him. the reason. Heather listens to this. <laughs> my, my wife would be calling the loony bin if she, if, if, if that, I mean, but that's... But that's the thing. There's, there's the historical reality that I am married. And I carry around this symbol on my hand every single day as a testimony to that. It's a historical truth. A truth that really exi- exists independently of how I feel about it from day to day. And those of you who are married, you know that there are, there are these ecstatic, joy-filled days where everything's working and everything's great. And it's like, man, if we could just package up this day and reproduce it, I mean, that would just be amazing. I mean, we've had those days, right? But we've also had opposite days where like every single thing feels like a defeat. Every conversation, it feels like I, I bungled every conversation with my wife, with my kids. I just, you go to bed at night feeling like, Man, this was a rotten day. This is just this is just a bad day. And then there are a whole host of days in between, right? 
There are a whole host of days that are just kind of, you know, going through the, the routine. And that's not, that's not meant as a bad thing. It's just meant as an observation of life, that, that many of our days are just, um, you know, Eugene Peterson had a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's just kind of moving along the path, slowly but surely. And, and the thing that I would say is, to follow Jesus, you're going to have days that fall all along that spectrum. You're going to have those moments, um, those sacred amazing, awesome moments in your life where everything does seem to, I don't know, it just kind of snaps into place. And, and worship is just so much more powerful. Um, you know, baptisms move you to tears. You're, you, you're looking for opportunities to serve and invest in kingdom stuff. You're going to have other days where you feel like an abject failure. And you're going to have a whole lot of days right in between. But what I want to encourage you with tonight is I want to encourage you with this fact, that the resurrection is still real, regardless of how you might be feeling from day to day, which means that Jesus is still Lord, which means that Jesus has still forgiven you of your sins and offered you a hope for today and for the future. All of that remains true, independent of how your individual days might be going. All right, let's try rapid fire, huh? Uh, <laughs> This one's for you, I'll do the next. Okay, I was going to say next one I'll do in 30 <laughs> seconds, whatever it is. That's my commitment. Uh, this is a question more correlating back to uh, Sunday's message on death. First Peter, but it's related also as well to the resurrection. First Peter states that the gospel is preached to the dead and the living. Why the dead? What is that all about? Michael? He said, he said it was for Chad. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You want to go, you want me to. That, uh, well, you're going to have to correct what I'm saying, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> the... The reference is to a text in First Peter, um, and uh, talking about how the the gospel is declared to those who are. Why don't we actually just read it? Because I don't want to paraphrase it. Because it's it's a tricky enough text as it is without me bungling it. Um, so it's in, and and really, it's this is the only place where we find this in scripture. So I'm you know, I'm a little bit. Um, okay, First Peter chapter three. Uh, it says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He put to death uh, in the body, but was ma- he was put to death in the body, but was made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Um, gosh, that, that is a tough passage. And there's various different interpretations of that passage. Some interpret the passage quite literally, that um, in, in the interim time between Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, he was actually preaching to those who had, um, who had passed away never having heard the gospel. Um, so there was this, this weird kind of Tolkien-esque um, uh, preaching that went on uh, to the spirits who were waiting for the time of Jesus. And finally, after his death, Jesus went and preached to them. Um, that is one interpretation, and, and there are people who hold to that interpretation. I don't necessarily hold to that interpretation. My interpretation of First Peter chapter 3 is that um, the message of salvation, the message of, of hope, was, was also preached in the time of Noah. 
Um, and, and so that message was also heard, but that message was also rejected um, during the time of Noah as well. So the same type, and it's not a perfect interpretation, but the same type of preaching, the same type of message, now not specifically centered on Jesus of Nazareth, but the same type of hope and, and salvation was declared in the time of Noah, but was rejected. Um, that's my particular inter- So I don't necessarily buy into this notion, although, like I said, many people do. I don't particularly buy into this interpretation that while Jesus was in the grave, spiritually speaking, his soul was preaching to those who had never heard the gospel. What's your interpretation? Yeah, I wouldn't add much to the, to, to the, to, um, the specifically exegesis yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think, um, since I gave myself 30 seconds, um, for, us, <laughs> for me, this is a personal question too, because I've taught my children, well, my, my son's one and a half, but I've taught my daughter the Apostles' Creed. We, we pray it regularly. And there's a line in there, he descended into hell. Yeah. It's walking through the narrative of Jesus' life. And a technical term for the doctrine is called the harrowing of hell. You can Google it and actually find some fairly interesting stuff. Um, there's a lot of exegetic uh, debates regarding what the text means. Um, how should we interpret these various phrases, words, these kind of things. What I think I want to say is I include, and for certain versions of the creed, leave that out. I've included it in and have taught her that because I think within this phrase is the two truths that I think are true and important. And different, different times in the church, they've used this language to emphasize these two things. One thing that at times it has emphasized is that Jesus fully experienced death. Whatever it is that means, he fully experienced death. Um, and the second thing that it emphasizes is that salvation through Jesus was made available to those who died, who lived and died before him. Now, I am with Chad in not thinking that that literally means he went to a place called the prison or whatever, and he was talking to them for a while. But I think that that, that, that text is describing the truth that is spoken of in uh, Romans chapter 3, and I think somewhere in Hebrews as well, that the benefits of Christ's death Hebrews and resurrection, nine. what is it? Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, that the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection not only go forward to all those who would come after, but they do stretch back. And those who died before him are offered in some form or fashion an opportunity to be saved through him. So I think those two things are true. And that's what the doctrine of the harrowing of hell is designed to teach. And I think in some convoluted ways, that, those are the truths that those texts are trying to speak to. So. I think it also speaks to the authority of Jesus. And that it's saying that there's no power that preceded him or any that will come after him that will overtake the work he just did. Uh, if you remember, First Peter is written as an encouragement to suffering believers. So I think that's one of the lenses we have to keep snapped on as well. I appreciate both of uh, how you're sharing that. And let's just remember who, well, how the original audience have taken it. It had been confusing, but they would have realized, see, this is the man. He's been where I am. Yeah, yeah. and, yeah, and he, he said, I did the work. No matter your authority, I did the work. Okay, uh, this is a – we're going to go a different way again. Michael, we'll start with you. How does assisted death, dying with dignity, to be, is to be viewed in the eyes of the Lord? Man. Um, I, I, this is such a, these, these, these questions are so difficult for me, for the reason that, um, we have the capability to keep persons alive long past when they would have died in previous eras. And that is both a blessing and it, it feels like a blessing at times and it feels like a curse at times. But all we can do is take our times for what they are and respond with as much discernment as is possible for us. And uh, I, where I'm at is I don't think the giving and taking of life should be in our hands. So in that sense, I can't sanction assisted suicide. 
I can't, even if a person, and I know this is a, man, this is such a difficult issue, so don't hear me speaking like dogmatically on this. I recognize that this is a contested issue with space for Christians to disagree, I think, depending on how they're arguing. But where I'm at, because that's the position I take on on, on death and life, um, I can't, as I said, sanction assisted suicide, even if I'm helping a person die with dignity. Now, I think the difference is, if we were to remove the help of machines and a a person would die, I think that's different than if we were to use the powers of machines to help a person die. And I realize that's a gray area. And those of you who are in the medical profession may be laughing at my distinction because in point of fact, it may not be that simple. But um, at least so far as I've thought it through it at this point, that, that's, I think, what I would say. Um, in, hopefully that came across relatively clear. Would you say no, something I was, different? I, I wouldn't that? add. Uh, that's exactly my position, too. That, that simple? All right. Yeah. That's now the church's stance on this. Thank you. <laughs> that's a, uh, <laughs> the rest of the questions are really kind of uh, this big, changing uh, glob of questions that are... I don't know if we can answer them, but I, we'll entertain them for the sake of, yeah. of the request. And that is, um, what happens from the moment I die until Jesus shows back up? There's a, there were, that's the easy way I can interpret about seven different questions. I'll, I'll tackle it first. Um, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, a lot of scholars talk about what they call an intermediate state. Have you ever heard that phrase, maybe an intermediate state. Here's here's one thing that we know for sure, one of many things that we know for sure, based on what scripture is saying, that our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope is the resurrection. Now, I've always been surprised through the years when I say that, at how surprised Christians are when they hear that. Um, Because it's pretty clear in scripture that Jesus' resurrection is a first fruit or an anticipation, a promise of our resurrection. Um, Now let that sink in for a second. Our ultimate hope has been demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus. So that's what we look forward to. But that inevitably leads to a question, okay, smart guy, well, what happens right now though? When I have a loved one that's died. And, you know, if our ultimate hope is the resurrection, if our ultimate hope is what Scripture calls the new heaven and the new earth, well, where is my loved one right now? I don't hesitate to use the word heaven because the Bible, specifically the book of Revelation, doesn't hesitate to use the word heaven. That when we die in Christ, we reign with Christ in heaven. Or we, we are in God's presence, which is the definition of what heaven is. Um, that, that we are with him. Now, you ask me specifically, what does that look like? I don't know. And I think if I did know, it would freak me out anyway. Um, but I do know that we are in the presence of the Lord. I think, I think a lot of times scripture just gives us enough information, enough information that we need now, we always, think, we always think to ourselves, or at least I always think to myself, but I want to know more, right? I, I, I crave to know more. But I think wisdom tells us that there are some things that we're not quite prepared for. Um, 
scripture is actually uh, pretty simple on this point that when we, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, and whether you call that heaven or whether, you know, Jesus used the word paradise, which um, uh, it's another way of thinking about it. Um, but scholars oftentimes refer to this as the inter- intermediate state where we are with the Lord while anticipating the resurrection. Um, and, you know, some, some theologians and scholars have um, subscribed to what's called soul sleep, which I don't buy into. I don't think scripture supports that notion, but it's this idea that you die and immediately, once you, once you experience death, you, you would then immediately experience the resurrection. Like there's no passing of time in between. That doesn't seem to jive with what scripture is testifying to. Um, but this is a deeply personal, deeply pastoral issue for so many of us I know. And, and so I like to hang my hat just on what scripture plainly says. And scripture plainly says that we are saved in Christ and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and that's my hope. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, it just, like he said, it doesn't say much. It, I think about the one, the, another text I think about is Paul saying, it would be better if I died so that I could go be with Jesus. Now I'm going to stay here for your sake, but really I'd rather die and be with him. And so just like Chad said, I don't want to go beyond what scripture says. We'll be with Jesus and it'll be great, uh, but it won't be the ultimate. We'll go to heaven when we die, but we won't stay there forever. We will live forever <laughs> on a, in a resurrected new creation, new heavens, new earth, this place as it was originally designed to be. And I had one other thought while you were talking, but I locked back into what you were saying, and now I can't remember what it was. But, yeah, I, okay. that was great. Prepare your closing arguments, okay? Ah, uh, done. One of, the, one of the questions that's been raised is the question about Jesus uh, that we talked about Sunday, Jesus coming back and people meeting him in the air. And I really would encourage you to go back to uh, I was looking it up earlier, August 11th, 2013. If you go to our webpage and you go to media, sermons and media, and you go to older sermon series, you can go back to August 11th, 2013. Great sermon, I person. remember it well. Uh, it's, it was actually the forum with these two guys oh, and okay. Shane Wood. And it was an end times forum that really, I, I think, does a, a very good job of pointing out some of the fallacies that are being taught and some of the, uh, the wording that's used that's misinterpreted in the English language. So for those of you asking that question, I encourage you to go back there and then feel free to contact me at the conclusion that we could have a discussion. Um, it was just, it's presented in a way that I think would be beneficial and time wouldn't allow us even tonight in an hour to tackle that topic. So what I don't want anybody to, to feel like, well, you just threw my question away. Uh, we had to limit it kind of in scope and that's a big question that I think was answered earlier. So August 11th, 2013, End Time Forum uh, would be an opportunity for you to uh, pursue that. Okay, clock tells me we're in that uh, final stage. Questions are still coming in. Uh, and yes, we do know that the internet out here is absolutely ridiculous. Nobody knows that any more than the staff here because between 11 in the morning and 2 p.m., they shut us off. I don't know if we're in Petticoat Junction and they turn the phone off. But so if some of you are saying, I keep trying to send something, the best thing you can do is turn off the Wi-Fi when you're here and do it through your cellular We'll get that. Now you're going, Which is also a kind of awful, too. But it'll come through. Yes, but it's over. At least you'll get one bar. Okay. Um, okay, closing thoughts about resurrection. I'm going to process these last few that have come in and see if there's anything we want to... Oh, you really meant it. Yeah. I thought you were going to ask a question. That was going to be the closing arguments. Um, closing thoughts about resurrection. Uh, resurrection reminds us that uh, God created this world to be a physical and spiritual place together. Um, Jesus' resurrected body is the, as Chad said, is the prototype for all of new creation. And what we see here is a body 
that is 100% spirit infused. So as you go about the process of living your everyday lives in the now, recognize that this physical stuff that we deal with on a daily basis, people, objects, voices, emails, whatever it may be, hay bales, um, you know, boards, children, like all of this is part of life as it was intended. And you don't need to feel the pressure to try to escape the real for the sake of this spiritual, ethereal, floating around on clouds type world. The goal of Christianity is to fuse together the heavens and the earth, is to live on this earth in a fully redeemed way. Now we will live on this earth, this, it'll be a renewed earth, we will live on a new earth in a fully redeemed way for all eternity once Jesus comes back. And the gift that we've been given now is the opportunity, as Chad said, to anticipate that reality in our lives. We are to be a, like a movie preview, which technically is supposed to give you a sense of what the movie's going to be like. Or if you actually know farming, the first fruits metaphor. You bring in the first fruits and it gives you a picture of what the rest is going to be like. We're called to be the advance guard, the preview, the anticipation of the life of new creation, the life in the age to come. And so in the way we treat each other, and the way we enjoy God's good gifts like food and building stuff, and the way we celebrate all of the glory of creation is a pointing forward to uh, the future, and it is a pointing up to the God who made us. So take the resurrection into your everyday lives, and don't think that being resurrection people means being like spiritual people in, in, in the sense of anti-physical, anti-material. No, bring it all together. God wants to redeem your everyday life in all of its concrete particulars. Let him do so. And that is, again, part of the resurrection uh, difference. Okay, and I apologize. Uh, this question's come in four times tonight, so, and it was asked to me twice in the hallway on Sunday. Um, what about those who commit suicide? Uh, what is, is there a place for hope? What does the Bible say, not say? Yeah, I've I, um, been asked this question many times, too. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of the confusion, a lot of the questioning on, on this particular issue is actually informed by a distinctly Catholic doctrine um, involving suicide. Um, and I'm kind of ignorant on this. I don't know if this is still a doctrine that they promote very strongly or loudly. Um, but it, it has been the Catholic belief that suicide was, in essence, an unforgivable sin. Um, and so su there was no hope in suicide. A person takes their life. There is no hope of salvation or heaven or whatever. Um, and that has been, at least historically, um, a Catholic doctrine. What I really need you to know, though, is that that's not a biblical doctrine. That's right. Um, that's, not, that's not something that you're going to find. You can search high and low. You're not going to find that anywhere within the pages of Scripture. And so I reject it out of hand. Um, I've got to believe um, that our God is a God of justice and a God of grace. And when it comes to this issue in particular, again, I, I, I would never claim or desire to put myself in the judgment seat of God. Um, but when you look at the, the act of suicide, oftentimes um, brought about and instigated by severe emotional or mental trauma, um, sometimes physical trauma. Um, I've got to believe in a God of grace who understands that sort of pain that would lead to that sort of decision. And so I think that this, this is an issue that demands um, 
uh, some, some pastoral sensitivity that goes beyond some sort of easy, cheap, and ultimately non-biblical answer about where are they? You know, I, 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 I'd like to think more about my God than that. I, I hope that made sense. Um, yeah, I don't know that I would add anything. You know, I mean, suicide is tragic. And, um, you know, there, it's, it's difficult to speak on both sides. We want to hesitate to, to overdo the grace. Um, or, I mean, to overdo the justice piece, right? But we also want to recognize, I mean, again, there, there are often, you know, the person is, as we say, not in their right mind. But uh, I don't want to offer too much uh, consolation either because the recognition, I mean, again, I think you're taking into your hands something that God reserves for his hands. Um, and you are, you are giving up on life, which is a statement about the nature of your faith. And so I disagree with the Catholic Church, and I 100% agree with Chad, but I understand why they thought themselves into that position, even though I think it was wrong. I think suicide's a big deal. Um, taking life is a big deal because we are not God, and I am not like my God. I'm not the one who gets to decide when I come and when I go, and taking that into my hands is a big deal. But, as Chad said, God is very gracious, surprisingly so. And so I would never say um, it is unforgivable, for sure. Yeah, they sound like preacher cliches, and I'm not embarrassed about them because I think that there's an element of truth in them and they communicate well. One is I don't think you're defined by your worst moment. Uh, even if that worst moment takes your life, I think God will always do the right thing. And Michael, your uh, prohibition is important. I'm not God. When someone comes and says, is my grandpa in heaven with Jesus? God will give us what we ask for. If we ask for mercy and grace, he will give us mercy and grace. If we ask for justice and to be left alone, he will unfortunately give every one of us that too. But I don't think we're defined by our worst moment. And uh, so that doesn't give solace to the person that says, I just want to know my uncle who, who did that horrific thing to our family and took his life and left us all without him. I want to know he's okay. That's a beautiful sentiment. Uh, you just have to trust the Lord and lean heavily on that faith because none of us can answer that question. Uh, but I don't think it's the ultimate disqualifier, and I think we're all in agreement on that point. Having grown up in a culture and its community where that teaching was, that was it. That was the disqualifier. I'm, uh, I was very grateful to have Bible college professors who were gentle and gave me, put me on a treasure hunt and said, try to find that. And I was very grateful I couldn't. It wasn't in the word. And for that, I hold on to hope which is what this is all about. Uh, because all of you asking questions about what's heaven going to be like, no clue. going to be a lot of golf. I just know that, just a lot of golf. And I'll be good, and that'll be all right. Well, I can dream anyway. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and pray us out of here. I appreciate you guys coming in tonight, and hopefully you've been encouraged. Hey, if you send the questions to this Google number, I promise you we're going to do our very best to try to bring them back on stage and get you answers. If we can't answer it publicly, we're going to work really hard to get you direct answers uh, through the text system so that you have uh, a response. Let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for um, heaven. And uh, I'm, there's thoughts that both of these men have said that just are banging around my head. One is that I'm unashamed to use the word heaven. That's your word, and that's your presence. And God, what a day it's going to be when we look at each other. And in fact, God, I remember several years ago, 
uh, Chad sitting over in the student center and he said to us that God must sit in heaven, look down on us talking about heaven going, isn't that cute? Because we really have no clue. You just told us you'd be there and you would bring us there. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. God, for those hurting in this room tonight, because they've lost loved ones who would not step into faith, God, I pray for your peace and your comfort because these are hard times to think this through. And for those who have questions about, I wonder if, and I, and I wonder if they'll be there, uh, God, may we just totally rely on your goodness and your mercy, trusting that you will always do the right thing, we have no doubt. But God, is, as Michael said, and it's sticking in my mind, help me to wake up tomorrow thinking on what is pure and good and noble and right and focusing on the promises you've given me, not what the world says to contradict them, and not the frustrations of working and living and paying bills and trying to get along with people. God, thank you for the times you've showed us mercy. And I even thank you for the times you've introduced us to justice. So we might have a taste of how mercy and grace is so much more beautiful and pleasant. Thank you for sending Jesus who went through hell so we can find life. And for this and for our families, and uh, the list would go on and on. Uh, may tonight end well with moments of praise as we share life with you and you share your life with us. And I pray all of this to the power of Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cochurch.com.